Boy, what great doctrine and theology in that song we just sang. I could just sit down because it's pretty much what you're going to hear from me today. This incredible God that we have, this amazing mystery that is unfolded throughout time that God has revealed in His Word. There are key topics, key points that you're going to hear me preach about. That is God's divine providence and how He works in a church. And as we sang that, man, I hope that that is your that's your plea, that that is your cry, that that is your mantra as we sing about this incredible God of ours. What a beautiful thing to worship together, isn't it? Before we study God's Word and open it up, let me pray for us and um, get us started correctly. Heavenly Father, we love you. What an incredible God that you are. The incredible mystery that has been revealed through your Son, the fulfillment of the prophecy, the fulfillment of the law, we, we, we just sang how you ransomed us, how you separated us, how you saved us, we who were hell-bound, that you did this. The gospel was in the song we sang, those words grounded in the, the, the book that's in front of us, this eternal, incredible, supernatural book that you've given us. We praise your name for that. We praise your name that you are an amazing, promise-keeping God, that you do what you say you're going to do. You back it up. And then you inspire and motivate us through your Holy Spirit and through the studying of your Word to do the things that accomplish your will. This is an incredible mystery, too, why you would use those such as us, the lost sinners. But by your grace, you've done this and you accomplish this. And we, in this time and this place, I pray that you'll give us the grit that we need to do the work that you have in front of us that is bound in your goodness and it's strengthened by the fact that you're going to do what you say that there is still yet things to be fulfilled things in which we get to 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 watch things that we get to participate in things that we get to glory in to to give this all back to you we thank you for this be with us as we study your word and i pray that we do that with precision and honor as we heard in the first first hour this morning in jesus name we pray amen So this morning, I want to talk about this incredible God that we have as we continue to go through Galatians 3, and we'll review a little of what we've talked about. What kind of overwhelmed me as I studied this passage and considered what we what what direction should I take this? What what does God want me to do with this passage? I just this this year have started a new series with my seniors. It is uh, expository apologetics. So we use the Word of God to defend what we believe. Make sure you know what you know, that you know for certain that it is grounded in Scripture, that it is the truth that comes from God alone, that it is eternal, that it isn't just your opinion, but you know why you believe it. And within that, uh, going through those kind of basic principles, we kind of came to this conclusion that there are multiple applications for a particular passage, but only one interpretation— only one divine understanding. We may apply this in different levels in our life and in different situations, which is the beauty and richness of Scripture, isn't it? That we can continue to study this Word, and I, I, I am, I'm preaching to the choir literally here. Many of you, as you sang this morning, we were all part of the choir. But as I think about this, you've seen this in your own life. Uh, I go back 40 years ago when I first put my faith in Christ as a young man and the Lord saved me. What I knew then and what I could apply then was true based on the interpretation of Scripture, but what higher levels, because of the depth and the richness of Scripture, that he has continued to to teach me and you. I know you've experienced the same because of the progressive sanctification. And as we look at this passage that we'll look at today, 3.15 through 18, there is a tendency to potentially go into an intellectual debate or understanding of this and to, to not take this and apply it and understand what this will do to me. Pastor Kevin, before he left, gave me a stern warning. Do not do that. That's not your job. Your job is to bring the Word of God to yourself and to others so that we then do it. And great advice. I believe he is preaching either this morning or next week he'll be preaching in Colorado. Make sure that you're praying for Deborah as she's still struggling a little bit with her heart and keeping it in rhythm. Uh, Just keep them in your prayers as we go forward this morning as he serves out there and and they minister with other people. 
But as we consider this, you can turn to Galatians 3. I'd like to start us out with a quote from Martin Luther. And I stole this from Alistair Begg, although he wasn't preaching on Galatians at the time. But I like, as you remember, when I kind of first started chapter 3 many months ago, or a few months ago, when we looked at this, Martin Luther said he was married to Galatians. That, that's really what, what connected him. And he is accredited, according to Alistair Begg and others, with this particular poem, probably written around the same time. He's writing some of the hymns for the early church. Let me read this to you if you can't see this. Here's what he says. Just kind of get us in a, an understanding of what we're going to hit today. Feelings come and go. Come and feelings go. Feelings are deceiving. Keep that in the back of your head. My warrant is the word of God. Naught else is worth believing. Though all my heart I should feel condemned, for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. That's a great little poem. Now, there's debate as to whether or not he authored this or penned this, and the reason for that is because he penned it in German. And this kind of rhymes in English, doesn't it? But Alistair says it is, and so I'm going to go with that. It's Alistair Begg. He said so. Anyway, but what a great poem, right? That's a great understanding of our God. So what we're going to hit today in this passage is I think we'll see this. The God that does what he says he's going to do and then backs it up. And um, there is no other entity, power, or being in the world that can actually do that. Certainly when we look in a mirror, we don't do that. But we have a God who does. And so a really quick review of Galatians and then where we were last week, and I think it's extremely important to come back to where we ended last week. Chapters 1 and 2, as we saw, was Paul telling his story, making his defense, giving his argument for being an apostle, very autobiographical. Chapter 3, as we're going through this explanation of doctrine, I was encouraged this morning in hour one that the, the, the Puritans understood how important it was to understand doctrine, to understand that the Word of God should be handled with precision and honor and diligently. And as we've gone through chapter three, we've done this together collectively, and there's been so much that's been reinforced to us. What a blessing that we've had that through Galatians. And then as we transition into chapter 4 in a few weeks, we're going to see an illustration of doctrine, of this doctrine put into practice and then the application in 5 and 6. And that's what's upcoming. But what we heard last week and the week before was this incredible thing that happened to every believer in here. This incredible eternal necessity that happened to every single believer that's in here, and that's redemption. And as we've heard for two weeks, this concept of, of Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law, that we need to understand exactly the, the power and the weight of that. And he became the curse for us. It brings me to a, a quote from Spurgeon, and he says this. I love this. I thought I could have leapt from the earth to heaven at one spring. And he was a heavy guy. At one spring when I first saw my sins drowned in the Redeemer's blood. Do you still feel that way? When we first saw what happened, exactly what took place, and I'm going to see that today, we're going to see that today, and I saw this as I put this together, that redemption is at the beginning and at the end of this sermon. It, it leads us into what we're talking about today, the redemption that only came with the blood of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see that that's our motivation at the end of this as we finish up in Colossians today, that these are bookending our particular message today. But what a great thing. Do you feel like leaping to the sky? A couple passages to remind us of what Pastor talked about the last two weeks. One from 1 Corinthians 6. Context of 1 Corinthians 6 is dealing with sin, specifically sexual sin, and, and, and the challenge of Paul to the church in Corinth. And he says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? This is a gift. Then he says, You're not your own, for you were bought ransomed, paid for with a price, so glorify God in your body. Boy, you think about that. That is a, a great challenge, that you are not your own. If we consider that, it's going to change the way in which we approach all things in life. And then Peter having a very similar thing that he says, a similar idea. There's a typo there. It's chapter 
1 verse 17 to start with, not 18, but he says this, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you believe what the Bible says about you as a sinner and Christ as the redeemer, if you believe in that, if you are in Christ, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, these are specifically Christians who have been exiled because of the name, but folks, you're not from here either. You're not from here. You are from, you are in and have an eternal home. Your citizenship is somewhere else. While you're in exile here in America, in Plainfield here, knowing that you were not ransomed from, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Ransom, bought with a price. Another word, we see it again. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what were you paid for with? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The ransom word here, the bought word here that we see, this is the price that has to be paid for the redemption that we saw last week and the week before. The redemption that was necessary for the believer. The redemption had to be paid for. That's what the ransomed is here. So what we're going to see as we think of that, that's what we're leading in from. This is what we've heard for two weeks. And now we consider, well, How do I know that's true? How can I be certain that that is real? That's a reality that the New Testament, what what we've seen, the fulfillment of this, the Old and the New Testament melding together, how do I know that that's something I can count on? And that's what we're going to see today. The coming of the law, what God does is keeps his promises. It doesn't nullify the faith that we have seen established through Abraham. So in verse 15, we see the nature of this contract where you could get into the minutiae a little bit of what that means. But he gives us a natural argument, Paul does here. A natural argument why we can believe that this is true. And then verse 16, the predictions of the Messiah, a prophetic argument for why we can believe that this is true. And then verse 17, a chronological argument. There's a logical argument of how things played out. Paul's giving us, you can believe that this is true. And then finally in verse 18, that there's a theological argument, the inheritance that should be a motivation for us about faith alone in Christ alone, that what we have, what's been given to us, as we've already seen in Scripture this morning, that's something we couldn't earn. And only a God that keeps his promises, that backs it up with his actions, could possibly fulfill something like that. So you should be in Galatians three fifteen through 18 at this point right now. I'm going to read the whole passage through. And then we'll come back around and hit each verse. So start with me in verse 15. Knowing that we're coming off of redemption that came through faith, here's what we have. Paul says this, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls to it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So when we see this, and then verse 19 we'll get to next week, when we see this, there's a lot about promises, There's a lot about, here's what it says, this is what God's done, how can we trust that? How can we look at this and trust it? So let's get back to verse 15, the natural argument. What we can see from a human perspective. Now I've I've brought up here the ESV version and the NASB, because I think it helps to look at both of these uh, translations together. We just read the, the, the ESV, let's take a look at the NASB for a second. Notice in the ESV he's got brothers and in 15 brethren. You might be saying, well, why does he do that? Why does he start right off with brothers? Well, I think it's because he's been hitting them pretty hard. I think he's been hammering a little bit, and and we've seen that a little, that I've got to remind you what justification looks like. I've got to remind you, you're listening to these Judaizers. Keep in mind, Peter and Barnabas and others that should have known better, he he just called out. Peter specifically, and I think he's bringing this back around to brothers. We're in this together. Christ redeemed all of us. Remember, coming off of redemption, he's showing some compassion and kindness here. He starts with brethren. 
brethren together. I speak in terms of human relations, how we interact with one another. The human contract, uh, he, he says in the ESV, a man-made covenant. Well, how we deal with one another. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. We know from a human level what that looks like with our own contracts. We who are fallen, we who are flawed, we who are selfish, we who are those who want our own way. Notice this, in ancient man-made covenants, and and we know this today, as well as modern man-made covenants, when we sign it or we confirm it, it's considered unchangeable. As a matter of fact, sometimes we have to go to, to, to court because we violate these things. People will hold us to an account when we sign our name to something and, and we don't live by it or we don't live up to it. They're, we consider them irrevocable. If someone puts their name to it, we would want them to hold to what they say, what they write, what they claim they'll do. And we're just humans that do this. Humans who lie all the time, who are sinning constantly, who needed the Redeemer, we still hold each other to this standard. Non-believers hold each other to this standard. We understand that. Paul's saying, listen, you guys know how this works. We know that this is the way it is in our world today. But notice he's comparing or more contrasting here that God's covenants are much bigger than that. They are much more sacred than that. So if we as fallen humans would do this, imagine what God would do. Imagine if God ratifies his own covenant. His standard of integrity is so much higher than our own. How much greater is that? And that's what he is seeing here. And I'd like to do just a quick review of the way our God views what he promises. How he attaches himself to his promises. How he backs that up. And of course, God's word is very rich. And we have many examples of exactly how God does this. I'd like you to turn to Lamentations uh, chapter Three, as I, as I just very brief, briefly talked to you about James 1. Go to Lamentations 3 so we can set ourselves up for this. Lamentations 3 is where you're going to be. But just let me read this to you. It's on the screen as you turn. Here's what James says about God and his promises. Every good, and some of you have perfect gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change no variation no shadow due to change so that's what we see from james here's what we have from the psalmist when we look at this as you're still going to lamentations 3 here's what he says they will perish these others in the world who make their contracts who make their promises they'll perish but you will remain they will wear out like a garment but you will change them like a robe and they will pass away but you are the same and your years have no end that sets us up for Lamentations chapter 3. We know what our God is like. We know what he promises. We know he has no variation. And then as we're in Lamentations 3, I want you to be reminded about what the people in Israel were facing. Really specifically, Judah. Now you may remember, this was predicted by Joshua 400 years before it happened. But that, that these people would be taken away because of their unbelief, because specifically of idolatry. Jeremiah had been preaching his entire career to the people of Judah, Ezekiel had done the same thing in the first deportation. Isaiah had warned of this. The people had heard of it, and yet they still rejected God. And in the midst of God's punishment, in the midst of God's God's fulfillment of his promise that he would do this, here's what Jeremiah says. This is his conclusion. This isn't, by the way, during good times, physically speaking. This is during hard times hard times that they had brought on themselves but here's what he knows about his god you should be in verse 19 remember my affliction and my wanderings the wormwood and the gall speaking to the lord here my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me but this i call to mind and therefore i have hope the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning Great is your faithfulness, and boy, do we know that great hymn based on this scripture. When we consider this, continuing this on, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah's understanding is what God is promising may not happen today, and we're going to see this in the New Testament as well. It may not even happen tomorrow, but I guarantee it will happen. And that is where my hope is in. 
If God said it, I can book it. If he claims this in his word, it will happen. That's the God that we serve. And as we consider, how do I take application from these kind of, you know, almost intellectual type verses? Well, we can start right there. Don't forget about the promise keeper that we have. Here's how Chuck Swindoll looks at this. The Lord's mercies never cease. The Lord's compassions never fail. The Lord's faithfulness never diminishes. Do you notice you're not in there anywhere? I have. That defines God's immutability, which is a four-bit word for he doesn't change. He never cools off in his commitment to us. He never breaks a promise or loses enthusiasm. Notice you're not in there. This is all about him. He stays near us when we're jealous for the truth. He stays near us when we reject his counsel and deliberately disobey. His faithfulness is unconditional, unending, and unswerving. Nothing we can do can diminish it, and nothing we stop doing can increase it. Mysterious though such incredible constancies may seem, it's true. We're just saying about the mysteries of how incredible God is. In spite of us. Let me repeat it. In spite of you and I, he is a faithful God that will do what he says he's going to do. So as we came off redemption for two weeks, how do I know he's going to do that? Because he says he will. Because he promises that. Because in John 6, any that the Father give me, I lose none. He promises that. That's the kind of God that we have. Wow, what an encouragement as we go forward in a wicked, dark world, right? That we are not in this alone. God and his promises is continued as we look at the, the word of God. Funny thing in Numbers, as we look at Numbers 23, this is coming from a guy who was, who was using the gift that God hit, gave him for a prophet, and he still couldn't help but to proclaim who, who God was. This is what he says. God's not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will, will he not nullify it or fulfill it? Excuse me, the opposite. Fulfill it. This guy was sinning and he knew the truth. Balaam understood and yet we sometimes forget. Joshua 21, 45 and Joshua's final st- statement to the people, not one of all the good promises that the Lord has made to, to the house of Israel has failed. All have come to pass. They had just watched themselves defeat an enemy they should have never beat. I, I don't know if you've studied that very carefully, but Joshua gives us their kill ratio. It was 1,000 to 1 with no training against giants, men who were well-armed, well-trained in fortified cities, and a 1,000 to 1 kill ratio for the Israelites. Joshua said, that wasn't you. That was a God who said, I will do it, and it will all come to pass. That's a God we serve. How about Ezekiel? He says this, Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. I think of this verse, and he's talking, of course, about what's going to happen in judgment that we just looked at in Lamentations, but this is true of his return, too. This is true of his judgment. We know there is going to be a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I know you're longing for the day when you see Christ face to face. When the culmination of your faith becomes sight. When you hear that trumpet, when that archangel cry, and maybe this morning, thought it'd be, I always thought it'd be cool to happen when I'm teaching or preaching, and I do it a lot, so it, the odds are pretty good. But it'd be kind of cool if that happened right now. Boy, aren't we longing for that day? And when it is going to happen, when that moment takes place that only the Father, and I believe the Son now glorified, knows he will not delay. As a matter of fact, the way Paul puts it, twinkling of an eye, less than a fraction of a second. That will happen. That's our God. What a beautiful thing to consider. That's the sort of promise keeper that he is. And then what does Malachi say? I, the Lord, don't change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I look at that and consider that for myself. The redemption we talked about last week, God doesn't change, so he won't revoke his promise from you. And if you're redeemed, you are redeemed forever. That ransom blood, that price was good enough. We don't add anything to it. We don't take it away as we've studied for weeks and weeks. It's a guaranteed lock. How beautiful is that? And then Peter says this about the return. Don't overlook this fact, beloved Christian, believer, redeemed, ransomed, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Christ's return and his kingdom and the new heaven, the new earth, what's coming our way, this is all going to happen in perfect timing. And his delay is simply for salvation's purposes. I think about this oftentimes. My students get all riled up when we start talking about eschatology. They want to know more about it. I said, you know what? It's a really good thing we have a patient God. Because if he had decided to come 1,500 years ago, you wouldn't exist. And you wouldn't be here. And you wouldn't have a chance for redemption. And that's true of everyone who is going to put their faith in Christ. Our long-suffering God waits for the perfect time. But he will fulfill his promises. And to finish this off, Spurgeon says this about God and his covenants. Because God is the living God, he can hear. Because he is a loving God, he will hear. And because he is our covenant God, he has bound himself to hear. He hears your prayer. He knows the heart you have. He knows the promises he's made. And he's bound himself to fulfill them. Hmm. What a God we serve, right? So that's all in one verse. We see God fulfilling his promises because it's no pathetic human contract. This is God's contract. This is God's covenant. And then verse 16, the prophetic argument. Also exciting to see our God in action at work. Here's what we see in Galatians 3.16, if you're back to Galatians. It's up on the screen if you, if you don't want to go there. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. I bring up the Nazbi here as well because we have the word seed used instead of offspring. But they are the same thing. This particular word seed, both when we see it in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, is what we call a collective singular. It's essentially meaning that this is to an individual application. Now we know he's defined it for us. that The seed here, the offspring, is Christ. But collectively it can also mean the body of Christ that is redeemed by Jesus. This is the seed, but specifically to Christ here. So when Paul is talking about alluding to prophetic evidence that the Jews were certainly rightly and expecting a Messiah through the Old Testament, they knew about this seed too. And this goes back even as we consider the promises to Abraham that that the whole world would be blessed through his offspring. And specifically, in Gen- that's Genesis 12 and Genesis twenty two eighteen. 18, specifically, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Old Testament believers, those who put their faith in the plan of salvation, not knowing that it would be Jesus of Nazareth specifically, they were holding on to the promises of God that this would be true. The prophecies that we see throughout the Old Testament are ratified in the New Testament. They are guaranteed by Christ's fulfillment and many more to be fulfilled. But those were things they were holding to, much like we're holding to the return of Christ now. And when we consider this, this wasn't a new idea. The idea that a Messiah was coming, as a matter of fact, it's exactly what the Jews expected. You could turn here because it's a longer passage, but I'll read it to you from 1 Peter 1. Peter, referencing the salvation that has come to us, talking to believers, says this about prophecy, and specifically the prophecy of the Messiah. Verse 10 of 1 Peter 1. Remember, this is the prophetic argument. Concerning this salvation... What Christ has done for us, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And let me just pause here. You. You too. Me as well. 2022, the Old Testament prophets that many of them writing about this 3,000 plus years ago didn't understand everything they were writing, but it was revealed to them that this was for future generations like you so that you would have even more strengthening in your faith that your Messiah is true, that your God is a promise keeper. Are you noticing the thread going through these passages? That your God does what he says he does and nobody else is like him. That the faith that saved you, that the grace that saved you, the faith that guaranteed that for you, the Holy Spirit that was the guarantee for you, rather, is backed up by incredible prophecy fulfillment. They didn't know it, but you now see this, can look back and just be in wonder at the kind of God that you're serving. An incredible thing. 
Anyway, back to the text. It's for you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, the apostles, those who are writing the New Testament, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And I, I think about that. I understand maybe why angels long to look at this. We analyzed this passage this week in my apologetics class, had the kids kind of understand, why do they look into this? Why do you think angels are so fascinated by this? And they came to the right conclusion from my vantage point. And um, I think it, it, as, as kids get to be that 17 and 18, and many of them in Christian education for a long time studying the Word of God, they're starting to get sensitive to what exactly happened to them. And they came to this conclusion. The angels have never seen redemption like we saw. They've seen some of potentially their friends fall and never come back. They saw Satan, the most beautiful creation that God had made amongst the angels, fall and never come back. It's probably mind-boggling to them that how can these lowly human beings be redeemed? This is an incredible God that we have. They long to look into it because it shows them a piece, a character of God that is unchangeable, that is mind-blowing. And I ask you this question, do you look at your salvation that way? Do you long to look into it like this? Do we re-preach it to ourselves and remind ourselves of where you were and what God did to you? Does Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 come to mind to you often? And then Ephesians 2, 4, but God rich in mercy? that comes to the angel's eyes when they see it. And remember, they also rejoice when one sinner comes to repentance. They're fascinated by the redemption, the salvation that has been yours. Are you fascinated by it? But see, we've got a God who predicted this and then did it. That's what we have. So what are those predictions really briefly that we've already looked at? The first time we see this is in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Notice seed again. He will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Fatal versus temporal. We know Christ crushed Satan and his, and his way, his plan on the cross. Verse 3 of Genesis 12 I alluded to earlier. I will bless those who bless you and with him who dishonors you I will curse you and in you families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 22 we see seed mentioned there. I love this. This is in 1 Chronicles 17, continuing the the theme of the prophetic argument of the seed that they'd been looking at throughout the Old Testament. As we get to 1 Chronicles, we keep alluding back to this Babylonian captivity. Remember, that's when this was written. Looking back on what was written in 2 Samuel 7. What Nathan the prophet said to David and the promise, the Davidic covenant that would come. There is one little variation here that I think is fascinating. As I read this, I'll pause and tell you what Nathan initially said. But here's part of this Davidic promise, some of this covenant that has to do with seed. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your father, speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, your seed after you, and of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Now initially they're thinking, well, that's Solomon, well, that's Rehoboam, that's one of these other sons that eventually come down the line. But that's not what we're going to see. Eternal kingdom establishment can't be through those men. He shall build a house for me. Solomon did that. I will establish his throne forever. Hmm. Solomon died, so it can't be him. I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, in the First Chronicles passage, we have a difference from the Second Samuel 7 passage because here he, he leaves out this part. And when he commits iniquity against me, I will punish him. Hmm. Why is that not here anymore? Because we have a Savior who didn't commit any iniquity. That didn't need any punishment. As a matter of fact, He took the punishment on us. What could be in here, He doesn't put it here, but we know it based on all of the doctrine of the New Testament, that He became sin for me. That great exchange happened. He became sin so that I could take on His righteousness intentionally. We have this omitted because now we're not talking about some earthly, pathetic king. We're talking about the eternal king of kings. And he doesn't have any sin within him. There is no iniquity. And then what does he transition into right here? I will not take my steadfast love for him forever. And those who are with him, keep in mind, those who are his children, as we'll get to the inheritance, as I took from him who was before you. But I will confirm in him my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. Oh, that's our God. 
the promise keeper God, the prophetic argument God, the one who promises and then backs it up. Now, we don't have time because I've already gone too far just with this, but it's so good. Let me just show you a couple quick things that you could jot down in your notes, but we're not going to analyze these passages. The new covenant given to us in Jeremiah chapter 31, establishing this culmination of the Abrahamic, Davidic, even Mosaic law covenant, bringing these all together in the new covenant that you're a part of, that we've been talking about all morning long that Jesus ratified in the upper room in Luke 22 when he said, in this cup, a new covenant in my blood. Paid for with a price, that ransom that we talked about. That's Jeremiah 31. Not going to take the time to read it for the sake of time. But then we see these promises of an heir. Isaiah 7, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. He shall call his name Emmanuel fulfilled Matthew 1 23 the virgin shall conceive and bear a son she shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us and then in Galatians 4 a little further on we'll get to this in a few weeks but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son his seed born of a woman born under law to redeem those right back to redemption you see these connections who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons promise keeping God that's what we have And then finally, in 2 Corinthians 1, for as many as the promises of God in him, they are yes. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Every time it's yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen. It will be done to the glory of God through us. Old Testament, New Testament promises They are fulfilled through Christ, and they're always, yes, I will do it. Yes, I am the one. Yes, you can count on me. I am your king, your savior, your Lord. The prophetic argument. Now let's transition into the chronological argument. And we won't spend as much time here because this can get us into the minutia a little bit. But 317 says this. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Okay, so what is he establishing here is this is lasting authority of God. No one can change it, reverse it, annul it. And Abraham's covenant is unilateral. This promise he's made that we've already looked at a few times cannot be changed because God ratified it himself. And he won't go against himself. Remember, what we heard earlier from Spurgeon. He is, because he's a covenant God, he won't go back on his covenant. Because he is God, he won't go back on his covenant. So what do we see? This is the promise, Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land. I love this. Know for certain they will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Predicted generations before Anything happened with regard to Joseph, the, 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 his persecution, his rise to power, their time in Egypt, their, their, their uh, becoming slaves, and then the exodus. Generations before that predicted to Abraham, know for certain this is going to happen. And then we see this again in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. He didn't see this promise at his time, talking about Abraham, but but promised to give it to him, a possession, and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. This is an approximate number of the 430 we heard earlier. So what does this mean? Let's just briefly take a look at the timeline. Once again, I want to interweave this into we have a promise-keeping God. He does what he says he's going to do. We've got to apply this, understand this. This is the God we still serve. So Exodus twelve forty, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Where do we get that number? Well, we heard 400 a couple times, the approximate number from the Old and the New Testament. But here's where this number comes from. I've seen a few different kind of breakdowns of this, but I think this is the simplest and kind of the most basic way that we can see this from Scripture that backs it up. Here's where it is. God repeated the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to Jacob, in 1875 B.C. We get this in Genesis 46, 1 through 4. This is just before he comes to Egypt 
from living in Canaan. When he has discovered that Joseph is still alive, he comes back and all of his family with him, and they begin to live in the region around Egypt. This is around 1875. The law is not given at Sinai to Moses until 1445, and guess how many years that is? 430 years. Now, for some of you, like, I don't care, that's math, this is Sunday, we don't need this. I'm just showing you God does exactly what he says he's going to do. He said 430 years, it's going to be exactly 430 years. From the time Jacob moved there till the time I give the law, it's 430 years exactly. Now keep in mind, and I've mentioned this number before, this 645 years after the initial promise found to Abraham that predicted all this would happen. 645 years earlier. We have a God that does what he says he's going to do. Not bound by time, not bound by our restrictions. He is a God that does exactly this. Here's what we see in Romans, Paul, Romans 4, remember, intertwining Galatians and Romans all the time. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, 645 years before the law. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. The promise that he made before the law ever came supersedes that. It rides above that. That doesn't neglect the law. We'll get into that again next week. We're not saying the law is thrown out. As a matter of fact, Christ came to fulfill every jot and tittle of it. Let's not forget that. But faith is what saves. Faith is what justifies. And then the theological argument. Let's finish here. This this one's great because this is going to give us some stuff to take home, to take to the streets this week. The theological argument, because this is something that we have to hold to, that we have to believe, that we have to let just run through our veins, the remembrance of who we are, whose we are, and who we serve. Here's what it says. For if the inheritance that's yours, mine, anyone who is saved by the name of Jesus Christ comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, so let's take a look at that word real quick. Inheritance. It's a nice Greek word, and you know how I can butcher these words real well. I practiced this one, but we'll see how it goes. Amia. That's what it is. I wrote that out like my niece's name, so I'd know how to say the beginning of that. But that's what it is. And this is this. This is what it means. The promise of a future blessing. Notice, promise of a future blessing. Something granted, not worked for. That's what gifts are. They're promised something you didn't earn, but yet it's given to you. This sounds a lot like grace. Your inheritance in the kingdom, in eternal life, the fact that you're not paying for your sins, that you should, is something that is a promise of future blessing, something that is determined beforehand for you, and that is grace. Notice what we see uh, the author of Hebrews, whoever that might be, challenging these non-believers amongst the Hebrews that he's writing to with this. At least we believe that he's speaking to non-believers in the context of this passage. He says this, We desire each one of you, we believers who are amongst you, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. We want you to have the hope we have, this guarantee of this inheritance, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises. Through faith and patience, we know that God's going to do it. We wait patiently for him to do it. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, right back to the point we've been making, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Not in his day, not in his moment, but this all happened because his son was born miraculously, preserved miraculously. Keep in mind, when Abraham was nearly going to kill his son, ready to do this, God noticed that he feared him, he held him back from doing that. To him, in his mind, it was, if I kill him, he'll resurrect him. That's how much I trust the Lord. The promise was there right in front of him because when he saw Isaac and he lived, knowing what God had told him to do, he looked at that as this, this is like a resurrection. I can't believe this happened because he trusted his God so much. In part, that's what he's referencing here. In his day, now of course, the fulfillment of this in the future we're going to see without question. Here's what MacArthur says about this. I know it's small, but I'll read it to you. God did this, speaking of the Hebrews passage, not the the Galatians passage, but they connect. He made an oath with himself, the unconditional covenant, so that by those two unchangeable things, a promise and an oath, 
in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The hope we have is an anchor of the soul. Don't you love that line, by the way? An anchor of the soul. It holds you true. A hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. We have laid hold of the full benefits of the promise of God to Abraham when we have laid hold of Christ. We have an anchor of the soul when we are connected to Christ. We take hold of him as our hope. All the promises to Abraham that embrace the promise to David, that embraces the new covenant, are all in Christ. And when we lay hold of Christ, we lay hold of all those promises. There's nothing there about the Mosaic law. It's all about faith in Christ and Christ alone. How beautiful is this? So as we land the plane, I'm going to have you turn to Colossians 1. And I'm going to read to you what Peter says about this to lead us in to what Paul says to the church at Colossae. Here's what it says. 1 Peter 1, as you turn to Colossians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, there it is again, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance guaranteed by his covenant, his promise, because he's the one who keeps promises. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. As we've discussed, someday it's coming. And as you're in Colossians 1, let's see how we apply this. What do we do with that? That's all true. Great. Do I walk out of here and say... I'm saved. We've got a promise-keeping God. I'm done. No, we don't do that. What we have here is Paul talking to Christians he's never met. What I love about this, Paul didn't lead these people to Christ. Epaphras did. He tells us this in the verses just previous to verse 9. He had never met these people. He'd heard about them. He'd heard about them. And I'll challenge you. He's never met you either. If you've met the Apostle Paul, there's some people who want to talk to you at the back today. But He knows about you because he's written about you, not realizing it, much like the prophets of old when he's revealing New Testament mysteries to us. He's talking about an age to come that he's not yet familiar with. He knows of the believers that will come in general, and he's challenging these folks. Their faith is, it sounds like it's strong, but he now wants to challenge them with yet another next level application. Now, in the, in the book of Colossians, he's, he's going to warn them against heresy. It's a great warning. But here's what he says. They'd heard the gospel. They'd understood it. Now he wants them to take this and run with it. Here's what he says, verse 9, and we'll end with this. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This should sound to you like Romans 12. Okay, that's what it should be, so that you know the will of God, studying the Word of God, being in tune with what the Holy Spirit's teaching you from the Word of God, all grounded in the Word of God, increasing in the knowledge. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Notice those connections. We know the Word. We're, we're, we're in communication with the Lord through prayer. The Holy Spirit convicts us and leads us, illuminates His world, and then we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, of course, in line with repentance, as we've heard before, and increasing in the knowledge of God, progressive sanctification. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Sounds just like what we heard from Peter. In his might, he did this, for all endurance and patience with joy. And here we get this wrap around to what we're talking about today. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you He made the promise. He ratified the promise. He's the one that holds the promise. He qualified you to share in what? The inheritance of the saints in light. Mm -hmm. That's what he's done. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Once again, do you see you in there? No, he did it and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's your inheritance. In whom we have redemption. There it is, the bookend. Redemption, we began and end with it. The redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And what is he telling you to do? You walk in a manner worthy of your Lord. You take this with you wherever you go, and the salvation that is true for you, the inheritance that is coming for you, is all because of a promise 
promise-keeping God that has always been true and will continue to be true, and he wants you to tell everybody about him. He has entrusted this to you and I. And you might think that every time I preach, I'm a little like a broken record. Every time he's telling me to tell people about Jesus, yes, get used to it, I'll say it again next week. And I'll say it again in two weeks. Because it is your job, and it is my job. And the people that you encounter, I'll never see. The people I encounter, you may never see. And be happy, I teach seventh graders. Some of, some of them. That's a big contrast, by the way, between 12th and 7th, but it's fun. Listen, you've been called to this time and this place to tell people about this incredible promise-keeping God. As we look into four verses, we just see God, God, God doing all of these things, proving himself by the promises he's made, the covenants that he's made, that he always will, proving himself through the prophecies, proving himself through the chronology of the Bible, proving himself in the fact that he is the one who holds and guarantees our inheritance, the theological understanding of his word, and you have the honor to tell the world about this. Hmm. How amazing that is. And we need to do this in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to him. I think it's so apropos that in our first hour we're, we're looking at the Puritans and how they lived. Boy, can we learn a lesson or two about separating ourselves a little bit from the world so that we can be a difference maker to the people around us who are, by the way, desperate to hear this. They are in darkness. You're in light. You're in light. What a blessing that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this incredible encouragement that we know we have a God like you that is so much bigger, greater, stronger, and more of a promise keeper than I'll ever be. I pray that we look at this and we hold to it. We're anchored to it, as, as MacArthur mentioned but that we use this as a motivation for us to share this. We want others to know it too. We want our lives to be transformed and different so that others can see that in us. As we consider that we were in darkness and now we're in the, the kingdom of, of you in your glorious sun and in light, I pray that um, that's evident to the world around us and the honor that we've been given by you, that you've gifted to us, not just the inheritance, but the honor that you're making your appeal through us, that we don't take it lightly, that we are diligent studiers of the word and then doers of the word. Thank you for the opportunities you're going to give us this week to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.